Jesus teaching in Genesareth and banks of the Jordan, part three. Jesus and Bethsaida. From Mary's, Jesus went with the disciples along the north side of the valley to the declivity of the mountain which stretched on to Bethsaida, distant not quite an hour. The holy woman also left Peter's house and went to that of Andrew at the northern extremity of Bethsaida. It was in good condition, though not so large as Peter's. Bethsaida was a little fishing place. Only the central part of the city extended some distance inland. The two extremities stretched around the lake like slender arms. From Peter's fishery, one could see it lying off toward the north. The inhabitants were made up for the most part of fishermen, blanket weavers, and tent makers. They were people, simple and untutored, reminding me of our turf cutters. The blankets were made of goats and camel's hair. Long hairs from the camel's neck and breast fell over the edges and shone so beautifully that they looked like fringe and lace. The old centurion Zorobabel had not come to Bethsaida. He was too infirm for so long a walk. He might indeed have gone on horseback, but then he would have missed Jesus' instructions on the way. Besides, he was not yet baptized. Bethsaida was full of people from the surrounding towns and villages, along with strangers from the other side of the lake, from the country of Chorazin and Bethsaida Julius. Jesus taught in the synagogue, which is not a very large building. He spoke of the nearness of God's kingdom, saying in very plain words that he himself was the monarch of that kingdom, and arousing the usual amount of wonder in his disciples and hearers. As on the preceding days, he taught in general terms and cured many sick who had been brought and laid outside the synagogue. Several possessed cried after him, Jesus of Nazareth, prophet, king of the Jews. He commanded them silence, for the time had not yet come to make him known. When Jesus had finished teaching and healing, he went with his disciples to Andrews to get something to eat. But he did not go in. He said that he had another kind of hunger. Taking with him Saturn and another of the disciples, they went up the shores of the lake, about seven minutes' walk from Andrews. There, in a lonely hospital, were some poor lepers, simpletons, and other miserable, forlorn creatures, languishing, quite forgotten by the rest of the world. Some of them were entirely nude. No one from Bethsaida had followed Jesus for fear of contracting impurity. The cells of these poor creatures were built around a court. They never left them, their food being given them through an aperture in the door. Jesus commanded the superintendent of the hospital to bring out the miserable patients. The disciples covered all in need with the clothing they had brought with them. Then Jesus instructed and consoled them, going from one to another around the circle, and healing many by the imposition of his sacred hands. He passed some in silence, others he commanded to bathe or fulfill different prescriptions. The cured sank on their knees before him, giving thanks with abundant tears. It was truly touching. These people were utterly neglected. Jesus took the superintendent back to Andrews to dine with him. As they were leaving the hospital, the relatives of some of the cured presented themselves from Bethsaida, bringing them clothes. They took them joyfully first to their homes and next to the synagogue to give thanks to God. There was a grand dinner prepared at Andrews consisting of fine, large fish. They ate in an open hall, 
the woman at a separate table. Andrew himself served. His wife was very active and industrious, rarely leaving the house. She carried on a kind of trade in net weaving, employing a number of poor girls for the work. The greatest system and order reigned throughout her establishment. Among those so employed were some poor fallen women, once honorable wives, but afterward repudiated for misconduct. They had no place of refuge, and so the good mistress, pitying their distress, gave them work, instructed them in their duty, and prevailed upon them to implore the mercy of God. That evening Jesus taught in the synagogue, and then recommenced his journeying with the disciples. He passed many sick, but without curing them, for, as he said, their time had not yet come. After taking leave of his mother, he returned with all the disciples to the house near Capernaum that Peter had placed at his service. Jesus conversed there a long time with his disciples, and then left them to spend the night in prayer on a hill, which tapered to a point and was covered with cypresses. Capernaum lay in a half-circle up on a mountain. It had numerous vineyards and terraced gardens. On the top of the mountain grew wheat, thick and stout as rushes. It was a large and pleasant place, at once been still more extensive, where another city had stood in the vicinity, for not far off I saw all kinds of ruins, like tokens of a destructive war. Part 4. Jesus in and around Lesser Sephoris. His different ways of curing the sick. Jesus went from Capernaum to Nazareth, the Galilean disciples accompanying him for about five hours. He instructed them on the way concerning their future vocation. He counseled Peter to leave the borders of the lake, take up his abode in his house near Capernaum, and give up his business. They passed several cities, also the little lake with the country seats around it. In a shepherd field, two possessed men came running to Jesus and implored to be cured. They were the owners of the herds, browsing around, and were only now and then tormented by the devil. Just at that time, they were free from his influence. Jesus would not cure them, but commanded them first to amend their ways. He made use of an example. If a man was sick from overloading his stomach, and wanted to get well in order to indulge in new excesses, what would they think of him? The men turned away quite ashamed. The disciples left Jesus a couple of hours from Sephoris and returned to Peter's, Saturn among them. There were only two with him now. They were from Jerusalem and were on their way home. Jesus went to Lower Sephoris, or Lesser Sephoris, and put up with the relatives of St. Anne. It was not, however, at Anne's paternal home, for that was between this Sephoris and Upper Sephoris, the latter distant about an hour. There are many houses lying around in a circle of five hours, all belonging to the city of Sephoris. Jesus did not go at this time to Upper Sephoris, where were schools of the various sects and tribunals of justice. There were not many rich people in Lower Sephoris. They manufactured cloth, and the rich women made silk tassels and laces for the service of the temple. The whole region was like an enchanting garden, consisting of many little hamlets with country seats, gardens, and walks scattered among them. Greater Sephoris was a far more important place. It was very large and possessed many castles. The country around was lovely and abounded in springs. The cattle were of extraordinary size. Jesus' relatives had three sons, one of whom, by name Kalaja, was his disciple. 
the mother wanted Jesus to admit the others also into the number of his disciples, and brought forward the sons of Mary Cleophas as an argument in her own favor. Jesus gave her room to hope. After the death of Christ, these sons were ordained to the priesthood at Eulitheropolis by Joseus Barsabbas, the bishop of that place. Jesus taught in the synagogue before a great concourse assembled from the country around. He went also with his cousins out of the city and gave instructions here and there to little crowds of people that followed him or were waiting for him. On his return, he cured many sick persons outside the synagogue. Then entering, he taught of marriage and divorce. He reproached the doctors with having made additions to the law. He pointed to a certain place in a roll of parchment, accused one of the oldest among them of having inserted it, convicted him of fraud, and commanded him to erase the passage. The old man humbled himself before Jesus, even prostrating at his feet in the presence of all the others, acknowledged his fault, and thanked for the lesson just received. Jesus spent the night in prayer. From the house of his relatives in Lesser Sephoris, he went to that which had, in former times, belonged to Anne's father. It was situated between Lesser Sephoris and Greater Sephoris. There was now only one disciple with him. The present occupants of the house were, in consequence of frequent marriages, no longer related to Jesus. There was only one old woman who could still claim relationship. She was dropsical and bedridden. Her usual companion was a little blind boy who sat by her bedside. Jesus prayed with the old woman, making her repeat after him. He laid his hand for an instant on her head, then on the region of the stomach. She began to grow faint, remained unconscious for about a minute, and then found herself quite relieved. Jesus ordered her to rise. The dropsy had not entirely disappeared, but the woman could walk, and soon after, without difficulty, through copious perspiration and the healthful action of nature, she was entirely freed from her trouble. She interceded with Jesus for the blind boy. He was about eight years old and had never seen nor spoken, although he could hear. The old woman praised his piety and obedience. Jesus put his finger into the child's mouth. Then, breathing upon his thumbs or moistening them with saliva, he held them upon the closed eyes of the boy while he prayed. His eyes raised to heaven. Suddenly the child opened his eyes, and the first object he beheld was Jesus, his Redeemer. Out of himself with joy and amazement, he threw himself into Jesus' arms, stammering his thanks, and then fell weeping at his feet. Jesus admonished him affectionately to be obedient and to love his parents. He told him that if, when blind, he had exercised those virtues, he should more faithfully practice them now that he could see, and never use his eyes to sin. Then in came the parents and the whole family, and there were intense joy and thanksgiving. Jesus did not always operate his cures in the same manner, though performing them in much the same way as the apostles, the saints, and the priests after them down our own day. He laid hands upon and prayed with the sick, but his action was quick than that of the apostles. He performed his cures and other miracles as models for his followers and disciples. He always made the manner of their performance conform to the evil and the special needs of those that had recourse to him. He touched the lame, their muscles were loosened, and they stood upright. The broken parts of fractured members he placed together, and they united. He touched the leprous, and immediately at the touch of his divine hand, 
I saw the blisters drying and peeling off, leaving behind the red scars. These, little by little, though more quickly than was usual in ordinary cures, disappeared. The greater or less merit of the invalid often determined the rapidity of his cure. I never saw a humpback instantly become straight, nor a crooked bone suddenly become a perfectly formed one. Not that Jesus could not have produced such effects, but his miracles were not intended as spectacles for a gazing multitude. They were works of mercy. They were symbolical images of his mission, a releasing, a reconciliation, an instruction, a development, a redeeming. As he desired man's cooperation in the work of his own redemption, so too did he demand from those that asked of him a miraculous cure their own cooperation by faith, hope, love, contrition, and reformation of life. Every state had its own manner of treatment, as every malady of the body symbolized some malady of the spiritual order, some sin of the chastisement due to it, so did every cure symbolize some grace, some conversion, or the cure of some particular spiritual evil. It was only in presence of pagans that I saw Jesus sometimes operating more astonishing, more prodigious miracles. The miracles of the apostles and of saints that came after them were far more striking than those of our Lord and far more contrary to the usual course of nature, for the heathens needed to be strongly affected, while the Jews needed only to be freed from their bonds. Jesus often cured by prayer at a distance, and often by a glance, especially in the case of women afflicted by a bloody flux. They did not venture to approach him, nor dared they do so according to the Jewish laws. Such laws as carried with them some mysterious signification he followed, others he ignored. Jesus went afterward to a school situated at an equal distance from Nazareth and from Lesser Sephoris. Parmenas, the disciple from Nazareth, went thither to meet him. He had been one of the companions of Jesus' boyhood, and he would have joined the disciples at once, were it not for his aged parents at Nazareth. He supported them by executing commissions. There are many doctors and Pharisees in the school of Lesser Sephoris and Greater Sephoris. Also some people who had assembled to argue with Jesus on that passage relating to divorce, which he had declared unlawful, and for the insertion of which passage he had reprehended the doctor in the synagogue. That reprehension of Jesus had been very badly received in Greater Sephoris, for the addition made to the law on that point was in keeping with the teaching of the Pharisees. In this city, divorces were obtained on most insignificant pretexts, and there was given an asylum for the reception of repudiated wives. The doctor who had been guilty of the interpolation had transcribed a roll of the law and inserted little false interpretations here and there. They disputed a long time with Jesus, affirming that they could not understand how he could presume to expunge that passage. He reduced them to silence, though not to that acknowledgment of their error, as he had done the first. He showed them the prohibition against any interpolation, and consequently the obligation of expunging such a passage. He demonstrated to them the falsity of their explanations, and sharply rebuked them for the facility with which the marriage bond was dissolved in their city. He enumerated some cases in which it would be quite unlawful for the husband to put away his wife, but said that if one party could not live in peace with the other, they might with permission separate. The stronger party, however, ought not without cause drive away the weaker one against the will of the latter. But Jesus' words did not affect much among his opponents. 
They were vexed and proud, but they could not gainsay his arguments. The doctor of the law, who had been reprimanded and converted by Jesus and Lois of Force, separated entirely from the Pharisees, and made known to the people that he would, for the future, teach the law without addition. If they were unwilling to retain him on those conditions, he would withdraw. The interpolated passage in the law of divorce ran as follows. If before marriage one of the parties has had illicit communication with a third person, the marriage is invalid. The third person has the right to claim the one with whom he or she has sinned, even though the parties of the present marriage desire to remain united. Jesus inveighed against this, and declared the law of divorce to have been given to a barbarous people only. Two of the most distinguished Pharisees engaged in the dispute were precisely in that predicament. They were preparing to avail themselves of that interpolation with regard to divorce, and therefore had they been zealous in proclaiming that part of their so-called law. This fact was not publicly known, but Jesus knew it, and therefore he said to them, In defending this distortion of the law, are you not perhaps defending your own case also? At which words they fell into a fury.